We're going to talk public art, uh, that big public art sculpture of the boy holding a shark that's melting is not going to go in False Creek. That was the plan for it. But after 1,500 people signed a petition to keep it out of False Creek, uh, False Creek east of Moberly Square, the sculpture uh, is not going to go. The, it's the work of Chinese artist Chen Wenling and was designed to evoke concern about environmental issues. Uh, and Eric Fredrickson, Vancouver's head of public art, says the city has completed an internal review and they won't approve it at that site. And Mr. Fredrickson is with us now. Hi, Eric. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. So, first of all, what is the fate of this of this sculpture of the boy holding the shark? Uh, it's not going to go up False Creek, but do you, do we know or, or have any idea where it's going to go now? Well, it's not going to go on that particular site, but it could still be in um, along False Creek somewhere. What we're doing now is working with the Vancouver Biennale organization to look at some other sites that they had proposed and um, and see if one of them is more um, more able to, to to hold the piece successfully. Right. So so this was a case of people who signed a petition they didn't want this piece in their neighborhood. Um, I mean, is this sort of a case of not in my neighborhood phenomenon? Uh, I mean, are you disappointed by this? I think uh, we heard from a, a lot of people in the community and some people were very excited to have the piece and a lot of people did sign a petition against it. What we were looking at wasn't to do with, with setting up a referendum on is the piece good or bad or should it, um, you know, do, do, do people like it or not? It, but we did uh, ask the organization to put out public notification. We did receive uh, over 130 comments and it, the comments guided us to certain um, conclusions around the suitability of the site that really had to do with just traffic and access to the piece itself. It's a really busy stretch of the seawall. Um, and so the decision not to approve uh, the application to, to site it there exactly was, was completely on those grounds. Right. And you mentioned it's not a, a referendum on whether the piece of art is good or bad because that to me seems kind of pointless because especially if you read on social media, people love to criticize public art. I mean, that must be something you come up with all the time. Yeah. I mean, we have had some great runs at the city with pieces that, that people have really embraced and fallen in love with um, from the birds to the monument free Vancouver um, with our own program. And we know that, that art can often be really, um, it can raise people's uh, responses, tem temperatures, uh, tempers. Um, so we're really interested in, in tracking all that. And I love hearing all the commentary. Um, but it's also, we're in the business of supporting art and artists and letting the work sort of play out in, in the landscape. And so it's not ultimately the sort of thumbs up thumbs down is is of less import than than how a piece develops over time and how how people learn learn to approach it in different ways how it how it lives in the city and so that just makes it hard to put out an image of a piece that you're going to install or you want to install and then ask people to make a, a snap judgment on whether it's good or bad 
I, I just think it sort of cuts off the discussion a little too early. Absolutely. And sometimes uh, a piece of art that's really strange. Like I think of that, uh, the, the totem, the, the Trans Am totem, all those cars mm-hmm. sort of slightly crushed on top of each other on a base of an old growth cedar tree. I remember when I first saw that, I, I kind of dug it as soon as I saw it, but uh, I have grown so used to that. I drive by it almost every day. I love that thing. That's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but but let's talk about the nuts and bolts. The things people love to complain about is the cost. It's very expensive for this stuff. So so who's paying for this, uh, the boy with the melting shark? Like, where does well, the not, money come from? Not the city. So when we're working with organizations that want to do things in, in the public realm, it's really important that that's done without adding cost to the city. Um, we do have a granting program, a small granting program that does support nonprofit organizations to do mostly temporary projects. And we do so all, do also do some support for murals. But um, with uh, the installations that the Vancouver Biennale has proposed that are going in this year and, and that have gone in previously, that's not city funded. Right. And the Biennale... I, I hear that word all the time. I've recently just learned to pronounce it. But explain <laughs> explain what the Biennale is. Um, it's an organization that that uh, that works with artists to to bring sculptures, um, whether you know pre existing works or or new commissions uh, to the city um, and to other cities around the Lower Mainland and beyond um, in temporary exhibitions of the of the work in the city. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me, I'll, I'll make you answer two questions. What's the piece of public art that you've been involved with that people have loved the most? And what's the one that you've got the biggest uh, pushback for? <laughs> um, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the work that we've um, installed in the, in the four years since I've been at the city um, has all has all. I mean, it's all been great, and it's gone really well. I think you know everybody knows what the what the biggest stories over the last um, ten or fifteen years in, in the city have been, um, and it's just you know it's interesting to uh, to watch those things play out and to see things like the, the Biennale piece that, that you mentioned that was later donated to the city. Um, it, sometimes the the public response to a piece shifts over time, and that's that's really interesting to watch too. I think the piece, you know, I had nothing to do with it being installed, but I'm stewarding it now as part of the city's collection, is the Monument to East Vancouver, or Monument for East Vancouver is the the title, which often gets referred to as the East Van Cross. And I think that's a piece that when it was being installed around the time of the Olympics, the the team at the city thought it could be really, um, it could really attract a lot of criticism. And it's always attracted a lot of attention, but it's really grown into the city to where I think everybody sees it as a really central part of, of the East Vancouver cityscape. And the way that that piece has, has grown into the city and the city has grown around it is really, I think it's a great example of, of how a piece um, isn't just the moment that it gets installed, but how, how it lives right. over time. Sure. You know, that, that lengthy um, engagement that you have with the work that, that, can, that can really allow it to, to build its place in its site and, and in the city. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, Eric Fredrickson is the head of public art for the city of Vancouver, and he didn't want to mention the one that... uh, I'm guessing uh, Rodney Graham's chandelier probably caused you a little bit of grief. No judgment. (laughs) (laughs) 
Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong in from Mike Smith. If you're a Facebook user or maybe Instagram, think about how many photos you've seen of your friends with their bare arms. They might have a little Band-Aid on showing off the fact that they've got a vaccine. I've done it too. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that too. Uh, most people I know are very proud of getting a vaccine. I've had this conversation a few hundred times. Uh, have you had your second one yet? Are you Moderna or Pfizer? Ooh, AstraZeneca. I, that's all we talk about these days, it feels like. Uh, but occasionally, you'll talk to someone who doesn't want to get vaccinated, doesn't want to talk about whether they're vaccinated. And sometimes, it's usually on social media, when you're not face-to-face, you get people who are quite belligerent and they're violently opposed to getting a vaccine. And I think the conversation is only going to get weirder now that uh, you might be expected to have both vaccines if you want to do things, go to a concert, get on a plane. Uh, What if someone's working in your home? You might want to know whether they've been vaccinated. So the question has become, is it okay to ask people if they've been vaccinated or not? Some people might see it as an intrusion into their, you know, personal health. Jason Tetro is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also sometimes known as the Germ Guy. And he is with us now to help us sort of, uh, you know, go through these waters. Uh, Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, great to have you because it is a, it's an unprecedented time for people and science and how that comes together. So I guess my first question for you, Jason, is uh, are you vaccinated and what did you get and am I allowed to ask you that? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got my two doses of Pfizer, well over 15 days post. You know, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm also known as the germ guy. And so for me, talking about my vaccination status isn't really that big of a deal. I have a question for you. What car do you drive? I drive a uh, Toyota RAV4 hybrid. There you go. That's basically how it should be. It should be about the same type of discussion point as you would be if you were talking about, say, your car or something like that. Now, if all of a sudden I asked you what's your underwear, <laughs> eh, maybe it's a little bit of a different story, right? Calvin Klein. Oh, well. Yeah. Actually, but well, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, I, I see what you mean. It, it should, you're saying it should not be a big deal. Yeah, exactly. And one of the problems, though, is that when you see um, something such as vaccination be politicized, and unfortunately, these things do happen, then what we end up seeing is that as soon as something gets politicized, then you start to see a separation in the uniformity of uh, human mindsets. And then all of a sudden, we start getting into this idea of two-tier and discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, on the other side of that, personal freedoms. Um, And so what happens is it's not necessarily the etiquette of asking It's really putting someone in a position where their political uh, motivations and mentalities are suddenly brought to the surface. Because whether we're talking about underwear or cars, there's really no political motivation behind that. But when you start talking about something like vaccinations, it becomes a bit of a different story altogether. Yeah, that's that's true. But how can it not be political? If you are, say, you're a, a, a an anti-vaxxer and someone mm-hmm. says, uh, how can that not be? And somebody says, are you vaccinated? How can that not be a political question? 
Yeah, and that's really the problem, right? Is that vaccination is such a political issue that now we have to start thinking about political etiquette, not necessarily just conversational etiquette. And so in that sense, if you do not happen to be in a position of authority where you need to be sure someone is vaccinated for access or something along those lines, right, then you probably shouldn't be asking whether or not a person is vaccinated. You can talk about vaccines, but even then that might set them off and it may end up getting, you know, awkward and ugly. So I think in that sense, you can sort of maybe bring up the issue or talk about how the, you know, the pandemic has been going and thank goodness the vaccine has been helping, but don't put it on the individual so that you're not really asking them for that particular in piece of information. And again, if you happen to be trying to control access to something totally different, you have to ask. Right. And it seems to me that this is different than a lot of other health issues, because it seems like we're in the closest thing that our generation will come to a world war. There's almost Mm -hmm. this feeling of everyone pulling together to do your part. And I think the vaccine, you see a lot of that on social media. You know, I did my part. I got a vaccine. And and that Mm -hmm. adds a little extra a little extra spin to all this. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, it's all coming down to this idea of self-efficacy. In other words, I am doing what it takes to be able to protect myself and to protect others. Now, in terms of the um, you know um, battle angle, polio vaccination was a heck of a lot worse than what we're seeing with COVID, just so you know. I mean, they're, they're still killing people in certain parts of the country if you happen to say, I'd like to give you a polio vaccine. So in that light, COVID is still not that bad. But what we are seeing is an increase in the extremism as we see more and more individuals uh, becoming um, amenable to the idea of vaccination. Because remember, initially we thought maybe about 30% of, of, of our population would not get a vaccine. Well, that's slowly creeping down. And the more that you get Uh, you know, towards 80 and then maybe 85% and even 90% of people wanting to get the vaccine, those who are against it are going to choose more extreme measures to try and figure out how they can convince the public that they are right. And that's what politics is all about. Right. And and the numbers on anti like hardcore anti-vax people are only about two or three percent of the population. Yeah, and it's going to vary depending on where you happen to be. There are certain parts of the United States where it's much higher. Uh, and, and if you go into Europe, it's very interesting. They have different pockets where the vaccination levels just simply are not there. So what we essentially want to do is here in Canada, be fortunate. And, and, and see ourselves as being fortunate, continue to do everything that we're doing so that we can get to the end of our national pandemic, if you will, by in a couple of weeks or, or you know, by the time Labor Day comes around, but also understanding that it's going to probably take more time from a worldwide perspective because of this politicization of vaccination. Right. And, and as the germ guy, I'll ask you a big story today is that Pfizer, among a lot of other pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. is now trying to get approval to, for a third vaccine. And, and it seems like a lot of the, the experts here in BC, they say there's no need for it as of yet. But mm-hmm. uh, what, do you, what do you make of, of Pfizer just trying to push this third vaccine? Is this something we're going to see very soon? 
at the moment, no. And, and the reason that is, is because there's only a very small group of people right now who would possibly benefit from a third dose. And those who are immunocompromised, immunocompromised, frail, elderly, that type of thing, because they need to constantly have boosters to keep their immune system going. Okay. And that, that's the reason for doing it. What we initially thought, though, was that we were going to have uh, yearly vaccines for COVID-19 variants. The interesting part, though, is that we may have already predicted in advance how to prevent severe and, and serious infections with the current one that's in the four that have been approved here in Canada, the AstraZeneca, Moderna, uh, uh, um, Pfizer, and, and Johnson Johnson. So are we going to get to a point where we may need to have some kind of booster down the road? Possibly if we see another variant that all of a sudden you know, breaks through even the, the secondary T-cell response. But I'm not seeing that happening as we speak. And so I think right now it's really more of a waiting game to find out whether that's going to be the case. Meanwhile, Pfizer doesn't want to be caught, you know, lagging again. And so they want to try and make sure that they have these third doses and subsequent new doses already in the pipeline, just like we do with the flu vaccine every year. And this is Martin Strong in for Mike. And with me now, Jason Tetro. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, also known as the Germ Guy. And uh, we're talking vaccines and whether it's cool to ask people if they've been vaccinated or not. Uh, give us a call, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your uh, cell phone. So, Jason, uh, let's go to the phone. We've got George from the interior. Hi, George. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. What did you have a question for Jason? Yeah, I do. Jason, I have a small uh, little bistro here on the interior, and I was curious about uh, staffing. Most staff, of course, have been vaccinated. However, there is one or two holdouts, and not sure. I've talked to a few people, WorkSafe, as well as uh, even the Human Rights Tribunal, and uh, trying to get a straight answer, but it seems pretty gray as to what I'm allowed to ask, what I'm allowed to push for, and so on. Apart from just some gentle encouragement to get vaccinated, I'm kind of stymied as to um, what I'm able to do or not able to do. Great. Yeah, I mean, what I would suggest is that um, you have the mask policy continue because you know then that everybody is protected. And then what happens is you have a discussion with the people within your uh, establishment uh, and I've been seeing this happening in a number of places here in Alberta. I would hope that it could, could happen in BC. And then what happens is that people volunteer on their own that they've been doubly vaccinated plus 15 days. And what ends up happening is the entire staff all of a sudden does that and then the masks come off. What you're doing in this particular case is you're putting the power in their hands without essentially forcing them to do one or the other. And this is essentially borrowing from the way that the BC healthcare works when it comes to, say, the flu vaccine. You know, you can get the flu vaccine, but if you don't get the flu vaccine, then you wear a mask throughout the entire flu season. So I think that may be a much more efficient and, and friendly way of doing it so that you can be absolutely sure everybody is safe regardless of what the vaccination status happens to be. Thank you, George. Good question. And and if if someone's staff, say at a restaurant, if the entire staff has their double vaccine, can can they all not wear a mask now, in your opinion? 
Jason? Yeah, and, and that's what I've been seeing. Uh, I, I've been going into some establishments and they've taken the masks off. And, and the reason is, is because they have shown and they have, you know, they, they can actually give you the uh, the forms if you really wanted them, that everybody has been doubly vaccinated and it has been a minimum of 15 days since the last person was doubly vaccinated. They can throw that mask off Mary Tyler Moore in the street style. Uh, <laughs> Joan in Vancouver is on the line. Hi, Joan. Jean, sorry about that. Jean, uh, uh, you have a question for Jason? Um, yes, my question is if you've received two AstraZeneca vaccines, I understand the efficacy is somewhat lower than the mm-hmm. um, mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they um, providing or offering a booster shot for people who have had two AstraZeneca vaccines? Yeah, uh, the reason is that when you look at the real world data that's been coming out where they have been looking at people who have had two doses of AstraZeneca versus people who have had two doses of the mRNA vaccines, there is a difference. Absolutely. And it is 85 to 88 percent for Pfizer and Moderna, 80 percent for AstraZeneca. Now, the question is, do you want to go and get a third shot? And take away that dose from somebody else who may not have been vaccinated or doesn't have their double vaccination yet for the sake of three to five percent, you know, statistics and all of that. I don't see a reason for it. If you've got your two doses of AstraZeneca, I think you're going to be good to go, just like someone who's got two doses of any of the other vaccines. So there you go, Gene. That's a, that's a really good point, because I have AstraZeneca for my first one and then Moderna for my second one. And uh, yeah, I, feel I, I mean. Yeah, the mixing and matching or heterologous prime boosting, if you want to be official about it, it's, nice. it's been an interesting experience. Um, and, and what we've learned is that whether you've got, you know, the AstraZeneca first or, or the Moderna or the Pfizer first, as long as you're going sort of in an alphabetical order, it's going to be okay. You don't really want to go in the opposite direction. That, that, that's basically the only rule that you should be thinking about. Jason Tetro is the host of the super awesome show, and he's also known as the germ guy. And we've been talking about vaccinations, uh, you know, and everybody's got questions about vaccinations. And I, now we have Joan in Vancouver. Hi, Joan. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just wondered why, in your opinion, people who are healthy without comorbidities need the vaccine. Um, we ha- because that hasn't happened before when uh, mm. the healthy people are, uh, get these vaccines. Also, it, 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 as a service side, if you've had COVID and you have the antibodies, so sort of two parts to that question. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, sure. No worries. Uh, First off, it's always good to have some kind of baseline immunity against any circulating pathogen. So until we've eliminated COVID-19 from the face of the planet, then you're always going to be at risk for some kind of illness. And even though you may be immunocompetent, which is what you're talking about, perfectly healthy, uh, it may still end up being really bad. uh, Because I've seen some very, really strong, healthy people go down pretty hard when they got this. So getting a vaccine gives you that baseline immunity and you're all good to go. Now, here's the thing. Whether you've got COVID or you've had your first shot, one of the things that you want to do is you want to get that booster because it's going to really give you a much better opportunity to fight off this virus. So you may not even get symptoms. But more importantly, and this is especially for someone who has already had COVID, 
If you get another variant of COVID, it may actually end up being a worse infection and may end up actually putting you in a hospital. And the reason is, is what we call enhancement. And I've written about this. If you Google me and put in an enhancement, you can learn about that. But what it means essentially is that the second time you get it is a heck of a lot worse than the first. And if you get vaccinated, you're not going to suffer from that. So that's really the reason for making sure that you get a vaccine, whether you've had COVID or not, whether you're immunocompetent or not. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, you, uh, you have the information. You're the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and you're proudly known as the germ guy. Always <laughs> fun to talk to you. Thanks, Jason. It was a pleasure. Take care. And this is Martin Strong in for Mike this morning. It's getting hot. And coming up, uh, it's getting hot again. Uh, uh, coming up, we're going to talk to Environment Canada. Uh, Kamloops could reach 38 degrees on Tuesday, highs of 37 for Kelowna. So uh, stay tuned for that. But on the subject of heat and uh, all the, the havoc that it caused uh, in the lower mainland and across the province, it's really highlighted uh, the strain on our emergency health care system and the strain that paramedics are under. Later this year, a new contract between the Paramedics Union and BC Emergency Health Services comes into effect. It will um, offer full-time employment for many paramedics, but some are concerned that it's going to mean less service to those in rural areas. Merlin Blackwell is the mayor of Clearwater, and he's with us now. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Well, thanks for having me on today, Martin. Great. So, so how is the ambulance service now in Clearwater? So what we have existing right now is what's called uh, Fox and Kilo cars. The first car goes out on a 90-second call-out from the uh, station. So if there's an emergency call, crews are in the ambulance, they're on the road within 90 seconds. We have a second ambulance available, um, which comes into a backup role once that first car goes out. And that's kind of what we have right now. Under the new system, we'll be changing to 90-second call-out, but only for eight hours a day. The rest of the time, and the second ambulance goes on to an undetermined call-out uh, response time. And, we're, and at this point, they're saying, oh, it could be somewhere up to 20 minutes for the second ambulance to be called out. So those people will be on pager. They could be at home. They could be at the beach. They could be anywhere around town. And they have up to or around 20 minutes to get to the ambulance station, hop in the ambulance, and respond to an emergency. Um, so the major concerns there, obviously, is if you have eight hours of 90-second coverage a day, um, you have 16 hours or so of coverage that is a longer response time. And, and, you know, I have friends that manage SROs in the lower mainland, mental health services and things like that in, in, in okay. Vancouver. Emergencies do not happen only eight hours a day. <laughs> Overdoses do not happen only eight hours a day. We are a busy industrial area. Uh, a lot of tourism, a lot of venture sports stuff happens 24 hours a day. And this new model is going to reduce our call-out times, or, or sorry, increase the time it's going to take for ambulances to respond um, for up to 16 hours of an average clock day. Wow. So if it's at the wrong time, there's somebody there. They're just not in the ambulance. They're at home. They got to. So this new contract that takes effect in the fall, I thought, especially now with all the, the criticism on, on wait times and those kind of things, I thought this was supposed to help. Well, I think it does. It does help. It helps 
metro communities. It helps larger centers, those towns that are in the ten to fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollar art person uh, populations. What it doesn't seem to help, it or where it seems to take away services from the smaller towns. Um, the the two ambulance stations, the one ambulance stations. Our our town has uh, 2,400 people in town, and we service an area of about 5,000. So it's those towns sort of in the middle between tiny stations, which we'll see a, a, an improvement, and the say the merits or the chases in our area, uh, which will also see some improvements. That you know, I don't want to slide back on. I'm so happy for those towns and for all the metro paramedics that are going to see a benefit from this, but there shouldn't be a need to go backwards on mid-sized rural communities on this. We're talking to the mayor of Clearwater, Merlin Blackwell, and you're talking about how more hours of the day people will be on call. So I, I hear a lot about the on-call pay. Is that $2 an hour? So, two, so basically, if you're on call, you get 2 bucks an hour. Two bucks an hour. These are the people we pay to look after our community members, to look after in in the event of an emergency. $2 an hour in an uncertain pay schedule for the, you know, know, this is going to affect mostly the part-timers and the people with less experience. That does not seem fair. Um, The other thing that doesn't seem fair about this, um, when we talk about, the response times, which is, you know, that's my primary. I think we can fix everything else at some point, but we need to fix this. We need to look again. This is, this is BC Emergency Health Services putting more reliance on volunteer firefighters who are going to probably get to a lot of these incidents before ambulance services with the different call-out times. And it's probably also putting a lot of reliance on these ambulance crews. They're going to feel a moral duty inside to do more than they're being paid for. And, and that's a real shame. And I, I really think these people deserve more. I, I really think the, the AMRs and the paramedics that work in rural BC deserve a better deal than this. And I, you know, if we're going to invest in anything as a people and as a province, I think this is the one thing that we should be having another look at and maybe putting a little bit more money in, especially after the heat wave, especially after COVID, especially after so many years of an opioid crisis that doesn't seem to be slowing down. So you're saying that a lot of uh, people are volunteers, like volunteer firefighters and stuff like that. So these people will show up at scenes which desperately need a paramedic, but they're going to show up first. Yeah. Our CMP and our our entire fire department, with the exception of the chief, is volunteers. It's 20 some odd people, uh, comes and goes. They have basic first aid training. You're looking at a situation if they respond. They responded to a highway accident yesterday um, for because of the fire risk here. They showed up on scene. If they're having to deal with a traumatic medical incident for 10 or 15 minutes longer than they would under the current system, the PTSD that's going to trickle down onto people that are doing this as volunteers is completely unfair. It is one of the greatest tra- travesties of the system um, and this is why I'm saying we need to invest more in this. We need to do better on rural ambulance service. Um, let's not go backwards. Let's not make changes that don't leave us that leave us in a worse position. Let's hear what the health minister says, Adrian Dix. On what, here, here he is uh, talking about what action the government is taking to improve ambulance service. We're posting right now hundreds of new jobs, but of course 
when you're posting jobs, as, as we have, we've hired close to 300 new full-time paramedics since last October. And that process is continuing with hundreds more now. So the action has been in place and then going on for, for a number of years, and it's accentuating now. And uh, the posting right now, this week, for hundreds of new positions indicates the determination to act and to make things better. That's uh, Adrian Dex, BC's health minister. What do, you, what do you say when you hear that? So I have two questions about that. Um, the first one being, are these truly new positions or are they reclassifications of existing positions? Are we actually going to see four new paramedics in our town or four new EMRs in our town? Or are they just reclassifying the existing jobs into new job titles with more responsibilities and a different pay scale? That has not been made clear to me, and I think it's the latter. The second thing is, most of the positions in rural BC are 0.75 FTE, or full-time equivalent positions. So three-quarters of a full-time job. Why are we doing that? Why, why you know, if, you, if you're working in Abbotsford or Vancouver, you're very likely to have a full-time 1.0 position. But we're not doing that in rural BC. Rural BC, the cost of rent in my town right now for a one-bedroom suite is between $1,100 and $1,800 a month because we're in an, an industrial boom. Wow. The, 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 the pay scale does not match the reality of what's happening in the ground anywhere along the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. And in most of southern BC, because of the exodus of, of uh, residents out of the lower mainland uh, and Metro Vancouver and the Sunshine Valley, because of COVID, people are making a decision to choose their lives, and, and basically the southern house, house of BC is going into a housing crisis because of it. Okay, um, well, I'm going to have to cut you off yeah. there, uh, Merlin, but thanks for talking to us, and I wish you the best of luck with that. It, it seems like a, a pretty serious situation. Thank you. Yes, thank, thank you so much for the time. And this is Martin Strong in for Mike today. And if you drive, you already know how gas prices have been going. Experts are saying that these record highs, uh, around a buck seventy-three, could go as high as a buck eighty-five a liter before the summer is over. So now that electric car is starting to look really good, make a little bit of sense. And now that all the manufacturers are getting into it, we'll see more and more on the road. Uh, for example, did you know that Jaguar, that brand, says all of their cars? will be all Jaguars will be electric by 2025. Volkswagen is making an electro micro bus, like it's a a completely electric VW van, which will be available in the next few years. It actually looks kind of cool. BC Hydro did a survey. They found that two thirds of people in BC are planning to buy an electric vehicle, an EV in the next five years. But is this going to cause some problems? Can the manufacturers keep up with demand? Can we charge all these vehicles? What about the environmental impact? A University of BC business professor, Werner Atweiler, has just published a report about the state of electric vehicles in BC. He's with us now. Hello, Professor Werner. How are you? Yes. uh, Hello, Martin. Good morning. Good, good, good. And I I guess we all know about the advantages of electric cars, not having to buy gas, less greenhouse gases and all that. We'll talk about that. But let's start with some of your biggest concerns about the influx of electric cars. 
Yeah, so the biggest challenge we're facing is really with the charging infrastructure because uh, uh, we have to find a place where we can charge our vehicles. And most people would really like to do that at home where it's convenient and not rely on other places uh, because charging an electric vehicle can take some time. Uh, It's not as quick as actually uh, filling up uh, a tank of gas. And when it comes to charging at home, uh, there are really uh, three major obstacles uh, or groups of uh, uh, people who will face challenges. Namely, um, people who are uh, tenants, uh, where the landlords decide what infrastructures they put into the building. Uh, people who live in, uh, in a strata complex, where it's the strata council that decides what can go into a common parkade, for example, and what infrastructure goes there. And uh, also people who have uh, single detached homes uh, who only have on-street uh, curbside parking and uh, don't have a dedicated garage and therefore would also face challenges uh, charging their vehicles at home. So the, the, the infrastructure problem we have to solve isn't just uh, transitioning to EVs, but also uh, how to charge them. And finally, um, to top it all up, there's the question about how to supply electricity to uh, all these homes, uh, because our homes weren't designed uh, to charge electric vehicles. So there is a capacity question, too, and how we manage uh, um, bringing in uh, enough uh, uh, power uh, to, uh, to power all these cars. Yeah, so that's, that's a question I have. If you have an electric car and you uh, say you have, for example, the average house, and then you suddenly get an electric car, how much electricity is that going to suck up? And what kind of, uh, you know, expense is that? Yeah, so I can give you my own example. Uh, I drive an electric vehicle. Um, we, we drive about 40 kilometers a day on average, which is very typical uh, for a BC household. And uh, that means uh, we charge about 10 to 12 kilowatt hours uh, a day. Um, and if you translate that into, into the, the cost uh, at a 15 cents, uh, that's $1.50. So this is actually uh, still a whole lot cheaper than paying for gasoline, uh, roughly uh, uh, one quarter to 20% of the expense of, of uh, uh, paying for gasoline. So it is uh, hugely cheaper to charge with electricity than to drive with gasoline. Um, and then if you, if you look at that uh, 10 to 12 kilowatt hours on average, um, that is easily charged uh, during the day. But the, the issue that arises is if everybody comes home at the end of the day and starts charging, then you have a, a, a basically a huge spike in demand. And so the issue will be how to manage uh, the, the load that could well be concentrated at different times of the day as people are driving and, and returning home. Uh, managing that is what BC Hydro is looking into uh, quite uh, with great interest because uh, they want to make sure our electricity grid will be stable. It can deliver the capacity, but we have to manage uh, the the local uh, power lines uh, because they weren't designed uh, for carrying uh, necessarily the spikes of electricity. Right. And what about the idea of uh, going on a trip and you, you're going to need uh, places to charge your car? because you're just going to run out, but you're not at home, say you're on vacation. Um, What's the infrastructure like now in BC for charging an electric car, say if you're driving in the interior or something? Yes, it's extremely sketchy. Um, Basically, there are only a few uh, level three charging stations, those are called fast chargers. Um, They only work with uh, those electric vehicles that are pure battery electric, not uh, plug-in hybrids that uh, have smaller batteries. So these fast chargers are very, very few and far in between yet. And that is where we need a significant investment, um, both from the public side. Um, BC Hydro has actually put in a few stations uh, across the province, but it's nowhere near what we will need in the future. And municipalities in particular and uh, operators of uh, 
uh, parking spaces. Um, uh, any any of the big companies that operate uh, uh, parkades and uh, other places where you can uh, park vehicles, they need to uh, essentially invest into uh, charging stations to make it work uh, that we can actually reliably charge anywhere we go in the province, and not just in uh, the more densely populated urban places, but also in the less densely populated rural places. Right. And I guess if you can charge your car while you're at work, that helps with the load. If everybody, instead of going home at five o'clock and then plugging in, it might sort of spread it out over the day. Yes. Uh, so we also need to look at where people work. Um, uh, many places um, actually uh, could retrofit their parking spaces to do that. Some um, have already done that. Um, some uh, companies that actually are uh, forward-looking have actually already uh, outfitted some of their parking spaces, uh, uh, both public and private se- sector employers. But we are nowhere near there. For example, UBC uh, has a lot of parking spaces that are already uh, converted uh, to uh, electric uh, charging. Um, and uh, I know that uh, we will meet the demand, but other employers need to do likewise. Uh, and also those places where people might leave the car for an extended period, from shopping malls uh, to ferry terminals to, to other places where uh, people uh, park vehicles for, for longer durations. Right. So this infrastructure investment is not easy to come by because often we have this uh, um, uh, conflict about who makes those investments and how can they uh, capture the cost of this investment. Uh, because eventually it has to get passed on to to all of us as motorists. So this infrastructure uh, cost um, um, uh, cannot all be paid for by the public. Essentially, it has to come from uh, um, uh, basically asking us as as users of electric vehicles to pay for it. Uh, And so these networks need to have a business model to operate, and they need to work together with uh, the operators of all these parking spaces to make that happen. And what about the environmental impact of electric cars, making batter- this many batteries? And, and I, I'm not sure of how you make these batteries, but kind of, I know that there's uh, precious metals or, or rare earth metals that go into them. What about the uh, environmental impact of all these batteries? Yes, that is a very important question because lithium mining and uh, various other types of mining, rare earth mining, are not necessarily uh, taking place under ideal conditions. Uh, scaling up this industry will actually also lead to uh, temporary shortages because uh, if, if you are transitioning to 100% EVs by 2035, as our uh, federal government is targeting now, um, we will need to um, ramp up production of these minerals. And uh, that is actually uh, a very significant investment that needs to happen in those places that have these resources. Unfortunately, these are not necessarily places that have the highest environmental standards. So one of the things that uh, needs to be done is that we keep an eye very closely on uh, those manufacturing standards so that the lithium and other uh, minerals and uh, metals that we buy are manufactured and produced uh, to environmental standards that meet our expectations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot just outsource this to other countries and hope for the best. That right. will not be enough. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I know that you out at UBC, you people are doing some really interesting stuff with charging stations. You have a whole uh, plan for that. Yes, so both the campus uh, as well as the uh, community is working on it. Uh, the, the campus certainly has been converting a lot of parking spaces to uh, electric charging and uh, more as demand will rise. Uh, that means retrofitting parkades too to actually bring in electricity. Most parkades were not designed with electric supply in mind. They're just basically concrete structures. So retrofitting is challenging, 
I live in a strata complex where we had the same problem. I basically got a group of uh, owners together, uh, roughly one third of our owners, and we, we retrofitted our packet uh, with uh, charging stations, uh, level two charging stations that now allow us to charge our vehicles uh, in our packet. But it means uh, you have to get people together to do this, uh, uh, especially in strata buildings and uh, buildings that have a landlord. Um, that is just not an easy task because of uh, the um, the legal difficulties of implementing that. Sure, of course. Well, well, thank you so much. Uh, Werner Antweiler is an economics professor out at UBC. Thank you for talking to us. My pleasure.